Indeed, this is a prayer, and this is a prayer that we would be called to let the King of glory enter in. If you don't have a sermon outline, some men are coming forward right now to give one to you. You will need it this morning. Um, we return to 1 John, and this study in 1 John, just lift your hand if you don't have one, they'll be glad to give one to you. Uh, this morning, this study in 1 John is going to help our Christmas. Even though we're studying, going back to our study in 1 John, you're going to see as we exalt the gospel, as we see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ clearer and clearer, Christmas makes all the more sense. So we're going to 1 John. If you have your Bible, turn with me there to 1 John chapter 4, and it's also on the page in front of you as we return again to the glorious, glorious Word that can help us. Now, John is writing so that people can know whether or not they have saving faith. In fact, this morning, the message title is True Salvation, Evidenced by What? True Love. That was very, very weak. Notice what the title is. True Salvation is Evidenced by What? Very good. True Love. And so, John is saying, do you believe the right things? Do you live the right things? Because this is going to show whether or not you truly know God and have been saved from your sin. Now, we live in a day and a time where it's very cultural to be a Christian. Um, it's been that way for quite a long time here in this country. Um, even before the founding of our nation, long before that, we were kind of thought of as a Christian society. And through that, much culture comes into that. People know that you expect to do this, you expect to do that concerning Christianity. And um, even today, even though our culture is fast becoming more and more secular, that's not very Christian, we still have millions and millions of people who do in fact go to church, who do even come here perhaps to this church. And we want to define the difference, though, between years gone by of cultural Christianity versus true biblical faith based upon what God's Word says in His, in His Word. This has been an issue for 2,000 years. This is the reason John wrote 1 John, was so that people could know whether or not they're a Christian, and this is the reason that we need it 2,000 years later today. It is just as much a concern. For those of you that are brand new to us, because we know that there's some that are brand new, and it's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 John, let's quickly look at the review. This will help us as we fly through this powerful text. Um, notice the box on the page that is there. That's the text we're studying, and we're going to work through that and expose what it means. That's what it means to study uh, expositorily through the Bible. We believe in preaching that way. But very often when you're reading the Bible, you need to know the context. If you don't know the picture around the passage that you're, that you're reading, it can be hard to understand it accurately. That's why it's good for you to read before a passage of Scripture. Read after a passage of Scripture so that you can know what the passage that you're focusing on really means. You need to have proper context. So this morning, notice this, the background and review. Number one, the Apostle John is writing to churches that are being assaulted with what? Satanic what? Lies. So that's, that was going on 2,000 years ago, and that's going on today. 
And um, there were the arrogant, unholy, and loveless doctrines and mentalities that were in the church, people that thought that they weren't sinning, people that thought that they were more spiritual than others, people that thought that it doesn't really matter whether you love the people that are around you, so long as you're religious, so long as you do your thing. You know, we, we have that in this day and time as well. Number two, the Apostle John, he writes to fill it in, refute the false teachers that are present, and to reassure the genuine believers. And so this morning, while we're looking at these warnings about, about being a false believer, listen to this. If you're a true believer, you can look at this text, and if you're honest with yourself and before God, asking God to speak to you, you can be greatly encouraged. So not only is there a warning here, but we're going to see that there's encouraging, encouragement here. So look at that number two again. He writes to refute the false teachers and to reassure the genuine believers. Number three, he writes to clarify the defining signs of genuine saving faith. So if you want to know whether you have saving faith, John is telling us what to look for. Number four, he keeps repeating defining signs involving doctrine and beliefs and morals and behavior. So the idea here is you need to believe the right thing and you need to do the right thing. You need to believe the right thing and you need to live it out. This is about your talk matching your what? Walk. Or your walk matching your talk. And so here's the picture. Um, you know, there's, it's possible for somebody to know all the right answers, to have the gospel in their head, but to not have it in their heart. And how do we know that? We know that by the way that we live. So he's talking about the defining sign. So he gives this defining sign. He says, here's a sign, your bib- biblical view of Christ. Do you understand who Jesus is accurately? Or do you have weird views about that that are not from God? Um, even in this day and time, we have real problems with that, that Jesus is just a, a figure from the 1960s, or Jesus is, you know, um, just a, a good teacher, or Jesus is just a radical, um, not recognizing that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to pay for our sins. And so, we need to understand a biblical view of Christ, and we see the passages there. Defining sign of a biblical view of sin the fact that we are all sinners, the fact that we are plagued and in bondage to our sin until Christ comes and sets us free. Some people would say, well, I don't have any sin. Or they say, I used to sin, but I don't sin anymore. Um, All of those kinds of things uh, John is dealing with. How about this? The defining sign of biblical obedience. Do you actually obey? Do you obey the things that God, do you live the way God told you, has told us to live? Your morality, your actions, and what you do. And then look at the last one there, which is where we're focusing again this morning, the defining sign of biblical love. Is there the love of God within you? Does it really reign in you? Now, this can be very confusing because people don't very often have a true, biblically backed up understanding of what God's love is, and that's part of what we're going to study this morning. Um, some people could look at this and say, yeah, man, yeah, man, I love, I love everybody. Of course I love everybody. You know, what, what's the big deal? I don't hate anybody. I love everybody. You know, I mean, and, and you know, 
I mean, there, that can mean all kinds of things. I mean, yeah. I mean, bring all the ladies along. You know, I'll love them all. You know, or, yeah, serious. I mean, there can be, bring all the guys along. You know, love. I mean, why not just, you know, but, I mean, 1960s, 1970s, or the 2010s and the 2020s of all of these strange views about love. You know, don't leave everybody alone. Just love them. Let's just leave everybody alone. Just love them. Let everybody do their own thing. You know, that may be the most hateful thing that you could do. If you see someone headed for a cliff, wide open, they're riding it, they don't know that a cliff is coming, and you just say, he'll figure it out. It's okay. That's very unloving. How hard does your heart have to be towards someone to know that they're running at 90 miles an hour toward a bridge that is out? And you go, it's okay. He'll figure it out. Real love says, whoa, 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 stop, wait. Real love looks at your children and says, you can't do that. You can't do that. I'm, I'm your dad or I'm your mom, and I love you enough to say no. I love you enough to say that, that, that you have to listen to me. And love in the heart of a child can say, I will listen. And so this is a, a beautiful picture of starting to show us who knows God and who doesn't know God. And so love is a, is a very, very confused thing in the world, but it's not confused in the Bible. It is very clear. And so John is going to help us with that this morning. The true church, fill this in, the true church has always maintained that God's Word clearly sets forth basic standards for two things. What are they? Basic standards for belief and behavior. So to believe the right thing and to do the right thing as necessary marks of genuine saving faith. So if you want to know whether someone knows God, whether they've been saved from their sin, it's do they believe the right thing and are they living it? Do you believe the words of Christ? Do you obey the words of Christ? Notice this last one there, genuine followers of Christ genuinely love others with God's true love. That's what John is saying in this whole section. The last sermon that we looked at dealt with this, and this sermon deals with this, that God's true love is the way that we love others, and that is a huge sign that you either know God or you do not know God. First John chapter 4, 7 through 21, God is love, and those who know Him clearly what? Reflect His love. If you do not clearly reflect His love, you do not know God. That You can come to church all you want. You can give all of your money. You can do everything that looks and sounds good. You can be eloquent with your words. But does this not go back to the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that says, if you lack love, you are as a crashing cymbal. You're just a gong. You may be loud, and people may hear you, but it is not pleasant, and it is not right, and it is not true. It rises and falls on whether or not we truly have the love of God. 
So in these observations, I want us to read this passage, and we're going to we're going to just work through it. We're going to jump down a little bit first, and then we're going to work through it. But First John chapter 4, verse 13 through 21, if you would take your pen and warm it up, okay? Just get it, warm it up, get it, get it nice and warm, because we are going to fly this morning. Um, we're going to have a great time with Pastor Lucas and Indy in a few minutes over in the ministry center. They've prepared sandwiches for everyone. We're going to enjoy that. But before we do that, may we just feed ourselves on the Word of God. Amen? So let's look and see. John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 13 through 21. Let's actively read. I'll read it aloud. You read silently. Look at verse 13 in the box on the page. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. So do you see that? By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. By this we know that we're Christians. Here it is. This is a defining sign. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because we, he has given us of his spirit. Let's read that last part of the phrase together because, are you ready? Because he has given us of his spirit. It doesn't say because he has given us his spirit, which he has. But it is saying something different than that. It is saying here in the accurate translations, include the word of, second to the last word on that line, circle the word of. I want you to see this, I want you to understand this. Um, the New Living Translation gets it wrong. It says in the New Living Translations, he has given us his spirit. That's wrong. It says he has given us of his spirit. And there's a difference, and we're going to see what that is. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So um, we, 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 we've seen it. We testify. This is talking about the apostles. They saw Jesus. The apostle John saw Jesus, and he's testifying that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world of the world. Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, we see that word abide coming up a lot here, put right out to the side, John 15. And I'm sure that, that that's part of where John is writing this from. He's remembering Jesus' great emphasis on staying with him, remaining with him. That's the word abide, to dwell with him. In John 15, over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you prove to be my disciples. Stay with me, remain with me, don't leave me. And I will, leave, and I will abide in you. And so we see that here in this in verse 16. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence, underline that word, confidence, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. We're going to see what that means. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Verse 19, we love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, what does it say there? He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, underline it, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now that's the most important part of the sermon is the reading of the text. But let's look and dive into this a little bit more. Some key observations, and when I want to start down in the middle of the text, number one here, we need to recognize that God's love is perfect love. And so we need to recognize that the world may be confused about love. The world has a lot of different… I mean, love can have to do with sexuality. Love can have to do with just giving. Love can have to do with giving of yourself and all kinds of other things. There's lots of different ways, and we use the word love… But here we want to recognize that we're talking about true love. We're talking about the perfect love that comes from God. And um, two key things there. In verse 18, we see that perfect love casts out fear, but also up in the middle of verse 16, it says God is love. So this is, this is talking about true, perfect love. Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Look what it says there, and let's read it out loud together. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12, and this is right under number one that is there. Look what it says. Let's read it. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us, and His love is perfected in us. So, this is talking about the perfect love of God that comes from God that we can have in us because of Him. So that's the context of everything that we're looking at this morning, God's perfect love. Number two, I want us to notice, and this comes from verse 13, true Christians have the perfect love that comes from God's fill-it-in spirit. This love comes from God's Spirit. Look at verse 13 with me up at the top of the page. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. So God's love comes and it gives to us His Spirit. Now I want you to notice this. Don't turn the page over yet. Notice this. This passage talks about of His Spirit. This means the the little preposition ek, or ek, that's a Greek word, actually. Ek is a Greek word, and it means out of, or out from, and to, or it means out from within. So, it's God has given us from His Spirit, this picture, He has given us from His Spirit, love. So, the picture is here, that the true Christian has love from the Spirit of God, and that is what has been given to us. In Romans chapter 5, it says, for the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, the Spirit and love go hand in hand, and it's not just that we got a Spirit. John is wanting us to know that with the Spirit of God, you get the love of God. And if you don't have the love of God in your heart, then you actually don't have the Spirit of God. 
That's very, very important for us to see. Now it's safe to flip the page, but I want you to see here that God has a plan in this. And the Apostle Paul is hammering the same issue in his letter to the Galatian Christians. Just this week, I was going through um, the, this passage from Galatian, Galatians with two different church members. You know who you are. We were just talking about how, you know, how do I remain self-controlled? How can I have control over my emotions? How can I have control over a lot of the different influences in my life? <clears throat> and the answer to that is, it's through the Spirit of God. His Spirit is in us, and it produces in us godliness. It produces in us the things of God, including love. So, fill this in. True Christians are known by the work or the evidence. Very, we, we call it, as the Scripture calls it, the fruit of God's Holy Spirit in our life. So, what is the fruit? What is the produce? What is the evidence that God's Holy Spirit is in you? It is played out in uh, the way that we live and the attitude of our hearts and how we treat others. Now, I want you to imagine this for just a minute. Could Jesus be seen physically when He was on the earth? Yes. The answer to that is yes. Um, God the Father, the picture is, is that God in all of His glory, no one has ever seen um, the triune God in His glory and lived. No one has ever seen Him in that. But we, but we saw Jesus. In fact, John makes a big deal of that. This Word calls Him the Word that we saw with our eyes, that we heard with our ears, that we handled. And I just, every time I read that passage from John's Gospel, I think of Him taking Jesus down off the cross. And he held him with his hands, this Messiah God. He said this word that, 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 would come, that he would come to life again and he would see him and worship him. But this John, to him, this Jesus was obviously very real. He's saying, look everybody, I saw him. If you read my letter a thousand years from now, know that me and a bunch of other guys, we saw him, we heard him, we held him. And so, we, we see the very real, visible nature of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're selling, celebrating at Christmas. We celebrate the beautiful incarnation of God, that we can see Him, that we can hear Him, and we, we hear what He says, and we see what He does when He lays down His life for us. We're, we're coming to know God in this way. But now, the Spirit is not visible. In fact, we see Jesus saying, the wind blows where it might. The Spirit blows where it might. it might. You don't see where it's coming from. You don't see where it's going. You cannot see Him. But so we can't see the Spirit in each other's lives in, that, in a physical way, but we can see the evidence of the Spirit in the way that you live. How you live your life is where we see God in you. It's not an inaccurate thing to say that you are the only Bible that some people have ever read. You are the only representation, you're the only Jesus that some people have ever seen. And so the picture is, is that God in you, it is His design, it is His intention that the world around you see Him through you. 
The way you live, the way you act, the way you talk, how you invest your life, how you invest your time, how you invest your talents, how you invest your money, how do you invest your faith, that they see God. And so his spirit is not visible, but the fruit of his spirit is visible. And so I want you to notice this in Galatians chapter 5. I want to quickly read it, but I want you to see it. This is really important. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Isn't that beautiful? You were called to freedom. When God calls you to himself, he calls you to freedom from bondage, freedom from cocaine, freedom from porn, freedom, freedom from anger, freedom from unforgiveness, freedom from selfishness, freedom from everything that fouls up your life. Verse 13, for you have been called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Underline that, through love serve one another. One another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. This is so beautiful. Let's read it out loud together. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was about 50%. Let's read it properly. Verse 14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is fundamental to knowing God. Verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Did you know that there are some churches where everybody just bites one another and devours one another? They speak poorly of one another. They, they hurt one another with their words. You know, sometimes we do that in our families. Boy, there's nothing like a family member to, to bite. You, you can hurt somebody more in your family than anybody out on the street with your words. That's not godliness. That's not what is right. Here he's challenging these Christians to not bite and devour one another because this is not from God. Look at verse 16. But I say, underline it, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's saying God's Spirit can hold you back from just doing what your fallen flesh wants to do. This is how you experiences freedom. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Why? Because the flesh is sinful. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, you're, you've risen way above the law and the power of God and the things that are all holy and true. Now, verse 19 is very important. We see an important list here. And what is this list? It's the works of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are, there's that word, evident. Here's the fruit of it. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, that means living in, outside with your sexuality from what God has said is holy and true and what is right. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That is God's original plan, and that should be your plan. And that your sexuality is reserved for that person and no one else. So anything outside of that is immoral. Notice what it says. Sexual immorality, impurity, that can be a, vi a, a very wide myriad of things sensuality, that's just living your life on all the sensations of the flesh, all, all of the things that this world appeals to. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, 
Mm. Enmity, strife, jealousy, underline this one, fits of anger. Mm. There's been times when I've had fits of anger and it has made me wonder enough whether or not I'm saved. If you have fits of anger, you need to question whether or not you know the Lord. Here it is, it's saying. You know, we, we think, oh yeah, sexual immorality, not I'm good there. No, impure, no, no, idolatry. Da, da. But, you know, can we control our anger? Rivalries. This is when you're at it with somebody. It's just constant conflict with somebody. Do you have that? Constant conflict? Dissensions, divisions, envy, even just envying what somebody else has, envying who they are, envy, you know, in, in drunkenness, orgies. You know, you would never hear about that before. And now it's exalted. Before that was reserved for, you know, that place over on the other side of the railroad tracks that nobody went to and that nobody talked about. And now there's TV shows exalting that. Now, some of your parents have to explain that in a different way, and I'll pray for you this afternoon. But um, in things like these, these are the works of the flesh. Look what he says. I warn you. As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These should be sober words to us. Look at verse 22. But, but, the fruit of the Spirit, that means the results of the Spirit in your life. What's the first one mentioned? Love. That's the very first one out of the box. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, excuse me, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so the works of the flesh are being put away, and the works of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit, has come to rule and to reign. This is the beautiful way in which God gives us the power to obey. So uh, all, of that, all of that hinges on this beautiful work of God's Spirit in us being given to us. Very quickly, number three. True Christians confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and God abides in them. They confess Him, and He abides in them. Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now, just notice here underneath this, this idea of confess. Um, This is homo logeo, homo logeo, is a word. Um, you, when you first hear homo, you, you immediately think of homosexual. That's a very prominent idea in our word. That means same. Se- homosexual means same sexual. Well, let's, let's get away from just that mentality a little bit here. Let's look at homo logeo. 
Homo, the word logo is the word word or a statement. It's, it's, a, it's a word that is the part of the picture here. So homo logeo means to confess. Fill that in, to confess. It means to state agreement with. To state agreement with. And so if you confess Jesus is the Son of God, that means you agree with the statement. You profess this statement. Homo means same, same, logeo means word spoken. So you're agreeing that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, there are some people who, when they confessed that Jesus was Lord to the glory of the Father in the Roman Empire, they were murdered. They were persecuted. They were saying that, no, Jesus is God, not all your Roman gods. And so they were called atheists because they didn't believe in all of the gods. Well, they were far from atheists. They believed in the one true God, but that was part of the persecution that was leveled upon them at the time. So they were not ashamed to confess him as Lord. And that's part of what John is getting at here. Do you confess Jesus as Lord? Do you confess Jesus as the Son of God? Do you confess Jesus as God? And that is why, and fill this in, that is why we talk a lot about your statement of faith, whether you confess Jesus as Lord or public profession of faith. Now, I remember in my 30 years of ministry, occasionally I've come across a guy or a gal who said, oh, you know, I just don't talk about these things. Yeah, I believe, but I don't talk about these things. And I say, well, have you made a public profession of faith? Um, well, you know, I just, I just don't talk about religious things. But, you know, I believe. Well, have you been baptized? No, you know, I, I haven't been baptized. Um, that's, that's just, that's just kind of, you know, that's, that's not me. That's not who I would be to be in front of people and to be baptized. I, I wouldn't do that. Well, let me tell you, if that's your mentality, that, that means that you're not willing to confess Jesus as the Son of God. That is, a, that is a great concern, that if you, if you refuse to be baptized, I, I, I would say, boy, that's, that's a real concern over whether or not you're ashamed of Him. Notice here with me, what do you profess to believe? Are you ashamed to say that Jesus is Lord? Are you ashamed to say that He is Savior? Are you ashamed to say that He is God? So that would cause us to question, do you believe it? Are you willing to say it? And then this key one, do you live it? And so John is saying, do you confess Jesus as Lord? Um, that is a key indicator of whether or not you are a Christian. But we know that some people confess it gladly, but yet do not live in that. Look at number four with me. True Christians come to know, fill that in, come to know, trust, and live in God's perfect love. Well, where do we see that? We see that in the very next verse. In verse 16, look what verse 16 says. So we have come to know, circle that, and to believe, circle that, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so this picture of abiding, that's the word live. Uh, to stay with, to remain with, to dwell with. And so to look at verse 4. Let's read number verse 4 aloud. Not verse 4, but number 4. Let's read it out loud. Um, I want to make sure that you're with me. Look at number 4. Let's read it. True Christians come to know, trust, and live in God's perfect love. That's what verse 16 is saying. Notice underneath that. To abide in God is to abide in love. 
If God abides in you, then love abides in you. To abide in love is to abide in God. And if love abides in you, then God abides in you. That's what verse 16 is getting at. If you don't have God, you don't have love. That is the true, perfect love of God. And if you don't have love, then you don't have God. Why and how? And we see this because God is love. Right in the middle of verse 16, that is the reason that this is true. Look at number five. True Christians come to have confidence for the day of judgment. I love verse 17. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence. Circle that word, confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. We're going to look at that last phrase in just a minute, but I want you to see this, that if you are truly a Christian, you don't have to go to your death fearful. You can go to your death anticipating what God has. You can go in the confidence that Jesus has come and forgiven you. Jesus has come and saved you. Jesus has come and made you just before God. Look what it says here. How is this possible? And in verse 5, or number 5, right underneath that, it says, because as he is, so also are we in this world. That statement is astounding. Who's it talking about? It's talking about Jesus. And so it's talking about Jesus when he was in this world. When Jesus was in this world, Was he righteous and holy, loved by God? Yes, he was. And at the end of his life, listen to this, he took all of our sin upon himself so that we could be free from it. He takes it to the grave. He endures the wrath of God, and then he rises again from the dead. He is raised from the the dead, overcoming that sin and that death and that punishment. So notice this here. How do we have our confidence? Because just as Jesus, look what it says, because as he is, that's his righteousness, so also are we. You see, true Christians have been made like Jesus in this life. His righteousness, letter A, fill this in. If we are in Christ, then God views us as he views Christ. And how does God view Christ? Holy and blameless. Completely holy and completely blameless. And this verse is saying, if you are truly a child of God, God views you as this. Look at Colossians 1, 22. It says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, what does it say? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's what God has done. He has made us holy and blameless. This beautiful picture of his true salvation. Look at letter B. If we are holy and blameless, then the wrath of God has been removed from us. If we are holy and blameless, then the wrath of God has been removed from us. And how did that happen? Except that Christ took it upon himself. Look at Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified, that means made right by his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, this is the glorious confidence that you can have, is that the wrath of God has been taken by Christ for those who are true Christians. You can go to judgment day not in fear, but you can go to judgment day with joy. In fact, let us see, notice what it says. If the wrath of God has been removed from us, we have no reason for what? Fear. Um, if the wrath of God has been removed from us, we have no reason for fear. Everyone look at verse 18 right there. Look what it says in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the glorious picture of every bit of this is that we have confidence on the day of judgment because Christ took the judgment of God for us. And so a Christian, one of the marks of a Christian is, is that they are going to their death not in fear but in joy. Joy that God's promises are true. Faith that God will deliver on His promises. And you say, is it possible to go to death like that? Oh, friend, it is. Some of you live in great fear of death. And I want to say to you, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, this passage of Scripture can beat that out of you. <laughs> it can encourage that out of you. It can inform that out of you. That God has a glorious grace and forgiveness that you can look forward to finally being free from all of the sin and all of the pain and all of the flesh, all of the things that this fallen world keeps us in, that we will finally be with him. That is a glorious picture of a true Christian. Number six, number six comes from verse 19. Look at number six. True Christians come to understand that God's love for us was first. And that's what John wants us to see, that God's love was first. Look at verse 19, and let's read it out loud together. It's a very, very short verse. Look what it says. Let's read it. We love because he first loved us. You see, this is, John wants us to see that we didn't love God first. There's a lot of people say, well, I, I started loving God, so he loved me back. No, it's just the obvious, opposite of that. God loved you, so you began to love him. Notice what it says here in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, right below that, the satisfaction for our sins. That's what Jesus did. He loved you and saved you. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. For while we were still what? Helpless. Circle those two words. Still helpless. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at verse 8. In, what, in that, while we were still what? Sinners. Circle those two words. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to not become sinners anymore. But in the midst of our sin, Jesus comes, born at Christmas, what we call Christmas, um, becomes a man, lives his life, goes to the cross, and dies for us while we are still sinners. Now, the bottom part of this is very important. Don't flip the page. I want you to see it very carefully. God's perfect and eternal love sovereignly, 
you need to write that down, sovereignly draws his people to himself. That's what God does. The whole Bible shows us that God in his love draws people to himself. That's what he's doing. If you're saved, it's because he drew you to himself. Now, I want you to notice all of these passages. And these are just a few of the passages that show us the beautiful, divine calling and election from God. That if you're saved, it's because, not that you chose him, but because he chose you. It's throughout the Scripture. In the Scripture, it couldn't be more clear that all of this comes from God's tremendous love and overwhelming love. Number seven, I want you to see this in the last couple of verses that we have here. If someone says or thinks they are Christian but does not love others, he or she is a fill it in, a deceiver. I want you to see verse 20. Look at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his, for, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, this is the first place in the text where we see um, a negative. The others were positives. The, the others were, were if, if this is true, then it's, then um, then you obviously are, are with God, you know God, you're, you're a true believer in Him. But here comes one that says, if this is not true, if you do not love your brother, then you do not know God. You see, these should be sobering words to every person. And the reason these should be sobering words is that we are all tempted to hate. We are all tempted to hate. This is part of the flesh. Um, now, there's a lot of people, again, that would say, well, I don't hate anyone, and, and we, we need to not just write it off as thinking, well, I, I don't know. Well, you may, not, you may not hate anyone, and we would praise God for that, um, but that is, a, that is a, a careful evaluation that we need to be about this, because notice what it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. You see, you can fill it in, you can deceive others. You can say, oh, I love God, but then have hate for the people that are around you or someone that is around you. Here it is saying that you may be deceiving others. Or how about this, more widespread is this, you can deceive yourself. There's many who are self-deceived, and I mean, there's a lot of passages that deal with that, about being self-deceived. But it's important to remember that you cannot deceive God. He sees clearly the condition of your heart in every way. And so to come before Him in humility and ask Him, Lord, do I hate do I hate someone? Do I notice this in the box on the page? I want us to drill down on this so that you, I, I want us to be very careful about this because these are sober words. You see, you can hate an individual. You can hate an individual, or you can hate a group. There's a whole group of people that you can hate. And I, I don't even want to start naming them because I might miss the one that you hate, that, that you particularly hate. 
You can hate someone you know, you can hate someone you do know, and you can hate someone you don't know. Now, is Jesus talking about only Christian brothers here? And I want to answer that by Jesus' own, or, or is John talking about Christian brothers here? And I want to answer this by saying, what did Jesus say about hating others? He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. And there's numerous places where Jesus said that. So we would, we would recognize here that whether it's talking about do you hate people in the Christian community or do you hate people in the world, I would say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies. And yes, that means the Taliban. But it also may mean the person at work that's just got it out for you. It also may mean the difficult family member that's always undermining you. That God has called us to love those that we know and those that we don't know. Now, this doesn't mean that I have to agree with all the politics of AOC or anybody else. I mean, I, I don't. But am I, is it right for me to hate those that I disagree with? No. Is it right for me to hate the person down the street that plays their loud music at 3 o'clock in the morning? Or the motorcycle that comes by and scares my poor parents to death when they're on, on the highway? Okay, I'm revealing a couple of the ones that I'm tempted to hate. I'm tempted to hate. Lord, get them. Start praying, you know, imprecatory prayers. Let them wipe out. Is it, is it possible for us to think that way, to act like that? So we start getting tested in this. Is it, does it mean, oh, yes, let the guys run on their motorcycles 100 miles an hour down Sheridan Street, scaring everybody to death, waking up all the babies from university drive to the beach, just, you know, whatever. It's fine. Just love them. No, I can say, you're wrong. You shouldn't do that. You ought to go to jail. But, you know, whatever. I, but you don't hate them. They need Jesus. Matthew 7, 21 is very sober words to us. Jesus is speaking, and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's people calling him Lord, and he's saying that they're not going to enter the But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Verse 23, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, it's, it's very possible that many think that they know God and they're good with God, and they're going to have a very, very surprising, rude awakening, and it will be everlastingly too late. We must recognize that God is very serious about our salvation. He's very serious about what we do with Jesus. He's very serious about whether or not we confess Him and we believe Him and that we live with Him. And it doesn't matter how good you look or smell or how nice you smell or, or what all the nice things that you do if you don't 
know God. Matthew 24 talks about the end of the age and the signs of that at the end of the age. Look down at verse 10 with me. And it says, after a long list, which you ought to read this afternoon, look at verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray betray one another and what? And hate one another. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. I hope that's not you in the coming days. And because lawlessness will be increased, what does it say? Read it out loud. The love of many will grow cold. But then verse 13 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. So we've been called to endure to the end. Not going the loveless way of the world. Not engaging in the hatred of the world. We have been called, as the day draws near, to continue to assemble together to love one another and to remain faithful to the gospel of Christ and to show a lost and dying world that is soon to be judged what God's people look like in love. And you know, I believe that He's going to be saving people right up to the very end. I believe He's going to be saving people right up to the very end. So let's be involved with that. Amen? Let's let's show that to our neighbors. Let's show that to Cambodia. Let's show that to Indonesia. Let's show that to Melbourne. Let's show that to Hollywood. Let's live it with love. You see, verse 21 shows us something else. Look at the box at the top of the page. Verse 21, this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this is like a summary statement of the whole section in this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's not an option. The word must is there. Verse 8, true Christians obey Christ's command to love one another. That's a key indicator of whether or not you know Jesus. If there's people that you hate, if there's someone you will not forgive, notice this. And, and this, how, what does it mean to love one another? Fill a few of these in. And there's many that we could write down, but these are important. The first one that I put here is it means forgiving one another. If you won't forgive someone, then that means that you don't love them. Because that is the nature of God's love is forgiveness. And the The Scripture clearly says in multiple places, if you will not forgive your brother, God will not forgive you. Okay, that means hell. So the question is, is His salvation being played out in our life where we are truly loving others? Forgiving one another, serving one another. Do you serve or do you only want to be served? Serving one another. How about this one? Caring for one another. Do you refuse to be involved with a community group because you're not interested in caring for the members of your church? Hmm. I want to encourage you that when you get an email calling you to be involved with your community group, just coming to have dinner and and to know what's going on with each other and to pray for one another. I want to encourage you to respond to that because that's what Christians do. Notice this. Caring for one another. Praying for one another. 
Do you pray for others? Bearing with one another. I mean, I'm a difficult person to deal with, and I need you to bear with me, just like I need to bear with you, because you're difficult too. We're all difficult. Do we bear with one another? Supporting one another. What about even getting to know one another? Are your, is there love in your heart to get to know others? Teaching one another. The Bible talks a lot about that, that we are called to be learning the gospel, growing in the gospel, being discipled, teaching one another, admonishing one another. Admonishing, that word admonishing, we are called to correct one another. That's what it means to correct one another to point out where we need to go. Oh, you say, oh, I like the admonishing thing. I'll be the lead admonisher. <laughs> I'd like to correct everyone. Uh, I had, we had a guy one time come to church, and he said, yeah, I'm new here, and I'd like to meet with you. And I said, okay, great, love to meet with you. And he said, yeah, I just want to talk to you about all the, you know, all the problems I see. Um, I've been, and he said this. He said, I kind of have a, a gift of being a critical thinker, critical spirit. And I'd love to, I'm not lying when I'm telling you. He said, he said, I'd love to meet with you and just tell you all the things I think you could improve. And I was like, oh, dear brother, dear Lord, help me. You know, I mean, let me tell you, if you've been around here very long, we're all painfully aware of the weaknesses of this church. And probably the greatest weakness of this church is you're looking at him. I mean, I tend to have some of the most influence or influence with others, and I'm weak. We're all weak. We're an imperfect church, but we have a perfect Savior who calls us to stay with Him and to live with Him and to bear one another's burdens, to love one another, to build up one another, to support one another. It's so easy for us to be critical. It's so easy for us to be judgmental. It's so easy for us to be hateful. But true Christians love one another. So, some key questions. Number one, based on this passage, do you know that you abide in Christ or not? Look at the screen in front of you. Here's the very first word that we looked at this morning. In verse 13, in verse 13, here it is. Let's read it out loud together. This is the very first part of this section for this morning. Look what it says, verse 13. Let's read it. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And what is it that is of His Spirit He's given us? Love. His love. So, do you, does this indicate that you know God or not? Number two, do you hate anyone? Do you hate anyone? It's real easy to say right off the top of your head, oh, no, 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 no. But then you think about the kid who lives at the end of the street that, you know, breaks out the windows in the, in the houses, you know, and everything, and you, you see him do this, and you see him do that, and you, you're, I mean, do you, do you? You know, or maybe it's the family member that hurt you three decades ago, and you've never forgiven them, and you hate them. Or maybe in high school when somebody said something to you 20 years ago, and you've hated them ever since. 
Or maybe they're at the next, next desk over. And you, you've come to despise them. You can't stand them. You can't forgive them. Who are you tempted to hate? We need to ask ourselves this because John is saying this indicates whether you know God. How about number three? When you think of Judgment Day, what are your thoughts and feelings? If we're really honest, are you terrified? Does it really bother you to think about dying? (laughs) One guy said, you know, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be around when it happens. Um, but we need, we need to think deeply about how much does our the- theology inform the way we live and the way we look at the future. This is an important question that John is saying that, look, Christian, if you're a Christian, listen, you don't have to be afraid. You can have confidence in the day of judgment. You can say, there is my Redeemer. I should be judged, but because of him, I am not. My faith is in him. My faith is in what he did on the cross for me. He delivered me from all of my foolishness and my hatefulness and my corruption. He brought me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You see, John wants us to know that we can be confident. And along those lines, number four, this is a great question for you to talk about as a family or as a couple today, um, for you to think about this before you go to bed tonight. In what ways can this passage encourage true Christians? In what ways can this passage encourage true Christians? I want to encourage you, um, before you go to bed tonight, to think about that. Marcy and I are going to be spending time this afternoon together, and we're going to talk about that. I want to encourage you to say, let's apply the sermon. Let's allow God's Word to encourage us. Amen? Let's stand together as we prepare to sing. Holy Father, I pray that as we are standing to our feet and thinking about this sermon that we would consider, is your true love in us? and are we in it? Lord, I thank you that if that's true, if that is true of us, then, Lord, we would recognize quickly that it has nothing to do with us and our merits. Lord, it has everything to do with what you did. Lord, this is not a message of moralism for us. This is a message of grace that your grace is what would save us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still helpless, having no power, Lord, you came and saved us from ourselves. Now, Lord, I'm aware that there's some in this room that have not come to clearly understand the gospel. They have not received the gospel. They have not received you. They've not received, Lord, your forgiveness and your grace. They've not turned to you in belief. And I pray that even as we sing in this moment, Lord, that you would be 
revealing yourself to them, that you would call them to believe the gospel, the fact that a Savior died in their place, and that if they will simply place their faith in Him and not themselves, that they can be saved. That they would turn away from a life lived in sin and self-justification to a life lived in Christ that's holy and righteous and all the things that you've called us to be and that you do it through your grace. Lord, I pray that you'd make the gospel clear to us in every way, that we would live true love to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's sing.